Usually when you think of Israel, the land of the Bible, camels and deserts and donkeys and Bedouin tents come to mind. Not ski slopes. But Israel has a winter ski resort. On Mount Hermon, 60 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, at the border of Lebanon and Syria and Israel, the Israelis love to play in the snow. Mount Hermon is over 9,000 feet above sea level, and it serves as a strategic site for Christians. For this is where Jesus was transfigured in all of his glory, which is what we want to begin with this morning. You know, there were two semesters in Jesus' teaching of his disciples. From the outset of his ministry, his emphasis was on who he was, his, his identity. And on retreat at Caesarea Philippi, he quizzed his men. Who do you say that I am? Peter was the one who got it right. He said, the Christ or Messiah of God. But that began the second half of their training, which emphasized where he was going, his destiny. For he was headed not to a coronation, but to a cross. And yet it's significant that before Jesus takes his disciples to this gory cross, he first shows them his future glory. Soon they'll see Jesus bloodied and beaten and bruised. It's vital they first see him in all his splendor. And so, on the summit of Mount Hermon, at the site of today's skiing, Jesus braces his men for the rigors of the cross with a glimpse of his post-resurrection glory. Which is what Jesus is referring to when he tells his disciples in chapter 9, verse 27, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Now previously, Jesus and his twelve disciples had been on retreat at Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi. This was a village on the southern slope of Mount Hermon. After a time with all his followers, Jesus now takes Peter, John, and James mountain climbing. And together they ascend to the summit. One year on our tour to Israel, we drove to the top of Mount Hermon. And I got to tell you, it was incredible. It was off season and no one was there. It was just us. And it was majestic. There seemed to be a residue of God's glory lingering in the air. On the mountaintop, you sensed that it was here that earth and heaven had met, that time had bumped into eternity. I'm sure these disciples felt it too. For we're told, as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. For the previous 33 years of Jesus' life, the glory of God was veiled in human flesh. Yet now, Jesus lets his magnificence radiate through his humanity. The brilliance of his godhood now burns through the veneer of his manhood so that the disciples can see. And what Peter, James, and John saw on the mountain that day so impressed them that they talked about it for the rest of their lives. As a matter of fact, years later in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16-18, through 18, 
Peter still recalls this moment on the mountaintop. But that's not all they saw. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. And both now appear to testify of Jesus. And notice, rather than his identity, they speak of his destiny. Moses and Elijah confirm his inevitable death. Imagine the disciples getting to eavesdrop on that conversation. Incredible. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Now apparently the three amigos almost fall asleep through the holy moment. Peter sees the glory while wiping sleep from his eyes. And if there was ever a moment for Peter just to hush it, and just to stand there speechless, this was it. But oh, not Peter. Not Peter. He has to say it. You know, it's been said, there are two types of people in the world, those who have something to say and those who have to say something. And here Peter is the latter. He opens his mouth. And so it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Notice, not knowing why he said. <laughs> Again, Peter speaks without really thinking. Here he says, Jesus, this is so cool. Let's just pitch our tents and stay put. Peter had no sense of the preparatory nature of what had occurred. Jesus had given them this vision to prepare them for what was ahead. He got so caught up in the moment that he ignored the mission that was on Jesus' mind. Well, verse 34 tells us, While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. This was no ordinary weather system. God's presence now shrouded the summit. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. It was a rebuke of Peter. Peter, why don't you stop talking and start listening? And boy, this is good advice for you and me, isn't it? You know, God gave us two ears and one mouth because he wanted us to spend twice as much time listening as speaking. You know, even when we pray, most of our time is spent telling God rather than listening to God. As believers, we need to hear him. And then verse 36 sums it up. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet. And no one in those days, and told no one in those days any of the things that they had seen. Boy, they talked about it later, but they stayed silent for the moment. Now it happened on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, that a great multitude met him. Suddenly, a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. Boy, as soon as Jesus and his disciples reach base camp, all hell breaks loose. They find a desperate dead 
and His demonized Son. You know, so often in the wake of a mountaintop experience with God, Satan strikes back. Our enemy hates it when God reveals His glory to His people. And here the devil retaliates. He grabs and viciously possesses this little boy. Well, the father tells Jesus, So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Apparently he was referring to the nine disciples who had been left below. And then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. I'm sure Jesus still gets weary bearing with his disciples' lack of faith. I hope you and I have faith. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. It happened right there before them. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. And as a father myself, a father of four kids, I can't help but to see this from the dad's perspective. Can you imagine, for years, this man has watched his son go through these fits of madness. The demon would seize him. His muscles would lock up, and he'd begin to shake uncontrollably. The boy would flail away in pain and bruise himself. And there was absolutely nothing this dad could do about it but just watch and weep. You know, I used to think it was taxing to parent babies, that that was the challenge. And then it dawned on me it was difficult to raise teenagers. That too is a challenge. But by far, the toughest time in a child's life to be their parent is when they're grown and they're on their own. And you have to sit on the sidelines and watch them go through bruising and excruciating experiences in life. And there's little you can do about it. That was the situation this dad lived through every single day. And yet imagine his elation when Jesus gave the boy back to his father. There's so much in that line. He gave the boy back to his father, healed and free and healthy and now happy. You know, if you have a child that's being harassed by the devil, I would encourage you to bring that child to Jesus in prayer. Bring your child to Jesus. And it may well be that the Lord will give him back to you, healed and happy. Verse 43. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your heart, into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. You see, the disciples were so caught up in the euphoria of all they had seen, Jesus was worried that they would overlook what he had to say, that he was about to be betrayed. And he was right to be concerned, for notice, they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them, so that they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Instead of the truth sinking down into their ears, it sailed through one ear and right out the other. Messiah's destiny, his betrayal, and his torture, and his execution was so contrary to their expectations of the Messiah that the mere mention of such things didn't register with them. Which reminds me of the woman who awoke 
one night and realized that her husband was missing from bed. Well, she looked around the house and she found him in their baby's room. He was standing over the crib. She studied her man's gaze, a mixture of awe and delight and amazement. And she thought to herself, what a wonderful husband and father, staring at our baby, praying and pondering over our child's future. She sort of came up behind him and threw her arms around his waist. She whispered to him, honey, tell me, what are you thinking? The man replied, I just can't believe anybody can make a crib this sturdy for only (laughs) $49.95. Well, sometimes we're just not on the same wavelength, are we? And likewise, Jesus here has some important truths to convey to his disciples, but sadly, they're on a different frequency. And it gets worse. They were not only dense to Jesus' intentions, they were also proud and selfish. Notice verse 46. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. Jesus is headed to the cross and these disciples are jockeying to be boss? Their concerns were nowhere near his concerns. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you will be great. Having coached for years Little League Baseball, I found that most kids could care less about the winning and who makes all-stars and all that stuff. And they care far more about playing with their friends records and rewards are for the parents, not the kids. If a child cares about those things, it's usually only because they've seen their parents care. Well, Jesus here, he set such a child, a little eager, if you will, on a rock next to him. And he says, the greatest in God's kingdom isn't the adult, it's this child. You see, a child's purity A purity of motive. The child's absence of greed ranks him as greatest in God's kingdom. For the child, it's about giving his best and helping others and playing on God's team. We need that kind of childlike approach to life and to people. Then verse 49 tells us, Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. Did you hear about the guy who got to heaven and an angel was giving him a tour and he came up and saw this one door. It said, entrance forbidden. He asked, why can't I enter that room? That's when the angel replied, because the church of Christ meets in there and they think they're the only ones up here. Uh, uh, If you're a former Church of Christ, my apologies, I'm sorry. But we, we need to avoid sectarianism. That our group is the only right group. It's not true. What God is up to in the world is always bigger than any one group. Now there is such a thing as sound doctrine, don't misunderstand. But in non essential matters, we need to leave room for differences. Hey, this side of heaven, not everyone is going to see every issue the same way and so it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem 
and sent messengers before his face. Now Jesus is locked in now. He's on his last lap, if you will. He sees the finish line ahead. He's rolling toward the cross. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Now there's some racial prejudice going on here. The Samaritans were a half-breed race, a mixture of Assyrian and Jew. And this created an animosity between the folks in Samaria and the Jerusalem Jews. So when these Samaritans heard that Jesus was headed to Jerusalem, they just ignored him. They failed to roll out the red carpet, and this ticked off his merry men. And so his disciples, James and John, when they saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Wow. James and John want to torch the town of Samaria. This is where these brothers with a hot temper, they, they eventually get the nickname Boangernes, which means sons of thunder, appropriate name. But Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. And then verse 56, For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Notice, Jesus not only came to do the will of God, but he came to do it God's way. Let me say that again. He not only came to do God's will, but he came to do it God's way, in the right spirit. James and John had a short fuse. They hoped to host a barbecue, Elijah style, use the Samaritans as beef tips. I mean, they had a concern for Jesus' reputation, but they had no sense of his spirit and of his attitude. And this is the mistake we often make, isn't it? Much damage gets done under the banner of Christianity by people who go out in Jesus' name but know nothing of his nature. You can't represent Jesus if you don't know his heart and his ultimate intentions. And today, his goal is the same as it was then. Not revenge, but redemption. Jesus' goal has never been to beat his enemies, but to win them over his friends. Commentator Bruce Larson, he makes a provocative observation on this verse. I think it's worth the read. He says, the calling down of fire and brimstone still has appeal. Those churches who take a strong stand against all the evils of life are prospering. They are against sin, the devil, alcoholism, pornography, communism. Make your list. People will flock to join the against churches, those with a negative thrust. It's much more difficult to attract a following for a positive program, one for God and for our neighbors. That's too ordinary and unexciting. And Larson's right. It's easier to call fire down from heaven than it is to reach out in love. Condemnation is easier than compassion. It takes much less from us to burn a bridge than it does to look past a sin and care for a person's soul and try to turn our enemy into a friend. But that's our calling. Not only to do God's will, but to do it God's way. And remember, remember this, 
The Samaritan sin was racism. An awful evil sin. If anybody deserves a little fire from heaven, it's a Samaritan supremacist. If then was anything like today, racial prejudice was treated as the unpardonable sin. Yet Jesus showed mercy to a town full of bigots. Imagine that. He showed mercy. He came not to cancel folks, but to change them and include them into His family. And that should be our attitude. To represent Jesus, we need to embrace His manner of spirit. And realize the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Not even the lives of those he disagreed with. And then verse 57. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road. And on this journey, Jesus encounters three would-be disciples. These men approach him with legitimate excuses for why they shouldn't follow him or why they should go back. And take note of Jesus' wise responses. First, someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Whenever we tour Israel, we stay in four and five star hotels. We eat gourmet food, we ride in an air conditioned bus, but not Jesus. It's not how he rolled. The Lord roughed it. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but he had nowhere to lay his head. Not because physical comforts are evil. Jesus never took a vow of poverty or or proposed that we all should live a monastic lifestyle. Jesus lived without creature comforts, not because they're wicked. He just didn't want them cluttering up his life. Jesus knew that a quality of life has little to do with your stuff. We find joy in spiritual things, not in material matters. Jesus refused to get distracted by this world because he wanted to focus his heart on heaven. And he wants his followers to have the same attitude. And then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. And boy, when you first read this, it seems harsh, doesn't it? I mean, why would Jesus forbid his son from attending his father's funeral? Yet understand, this son paying his respects wasn't the issue. Jesus knew the only reason this boy wanted to be at the funeral was to get his cut out of the dead's inheritance. You see, this man's issue was financial security. I like to think of him overhearing the encounter with the previous man. And so he's thinking, okay, I don't want to get rich following Jesus. I'll just lean on my own inheritance. I got dad's inheritance. I don't need anything. I got dad's inheritance. But Jesus tells him, wait a minute. Let your siblings work out dad's inheritance. You need to follow me. You don't need a backup plan. You don't need a contingency. You don't need a security blanket. And yet many people require one before they'll follow. If Jesus is your plan A, don't trust in plan B. That's what he's saying here. 
And then another prospective disciple also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And here the issue is urgency. Jesus isn't against families or goodbyes. But when the Jesus train leaves the station, you got to decide between the sentimentality of kissing mama goodbye and getting on board. What do you want to do? To follow Jesus, you can't drag your feet or look over your shoulder or live in the past or worry about all the what ifs. You got to get on board. Farmers say that you never plow a straight furrow looking backwards. You end up with waves, not rows. Your plowing gets crooked if you're looking over your shoulder, and so does your living. You can't live for Jesus living in the past. Past weaknesses rob us of hope. Past failures undermine our faith. Past affections steal our passion. Past attractions subvert our focus. Even past successes create a pride and lull us to sleep. The point is not to live in the past, but to live in the present. We need to handle the past like we would our rearview mirror. An occasional glance is okay. might even be helpful. But if you focus only on the rearview mirror and you take your eyes off the road, you're going to crash. It's been said, live with your back to the past, your hands to the plow, and your eyes to the future. That's what Jesus says to these men. You see, these men on the road teach us three issues that get in the way of our following Jesus. Present comforts and future securities and past preoccupations. The solution is to make Jesus our yesterday, our today, and our forever. Well, chapter 10. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Jesus is now moving south. He's traveling from Galilee to the capital of Jerusalem. And he commissions an advance team, 70 men, 35 pairs of disciples. And of course, the question arises, why the number 70? And I can think of a few possibilities. First of all, Moses used 70 judges to lead Israel. Second, the Jewish Supreme Court, or Sanhedrin, consisted of 70 rabbis. A more likely explanation in Genesis 10, the table of nations, 70 names represent the number of people groups in the world. Jesus chose 12 disciples because he wanted to reach the 12 tribes of Israel. Perhaps he chose 70 men here since he also came to reach the whole world. And why Jesus dispatches his disciples two by two is a bit simpler to explain. There's safety in numbers. Go with a friend and there's double the knowledge, double the wisdom, double the zeal, double the accountability. God didn't even let the animals aboard the ark on their own. He brought them on two by two. And Jesus always sends out his disciples in pairs. I call it Pear power. Well, then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. 
And 2,000 years later, this is still true. Just ask Stacy, who's in charge of staffing our children's ministry. Well, laborers are few. There's always a shortage of Christian workers. We need volunteers who will help us fulfill the mission of the church. And Jesus tells us how to recruit our help. We can sponsor workshops and we can do training seminars and have Bible colleges. But notice the key here to recruiting workers is to pray. And then verse 3. He says, Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Hey, the world in which we operate is a vicious and hostile and dangerous place. Expect opposition. Expect wolves that will try to eat you alive. Be prepared to fight, but be careful how you fight. Be as lambs among wolves. Don't harden yourself to your surroundings and become no better morally than your enemy. We fight evil with good and hate with love and ugliness with kindness. And we should carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals and greet no one along the road. Apparently this mission was born out of a sense of urgency and Jesus knew it wouldn't last long. There was no need for them to take a lot of baggage. He says travel light. We should too. And and then he warns them of cumbersome conversation. Oriental greetings, like southern hellos, can get long. People can go on and on. Tell me about your mama. Tell me about your grandma. Tell me about Bless your heart. All the rest of it. Jesus says, don't get caught up in this obligatory chit-chat. It's meaningless. Jesus wants his people to avoid getting bogged down. As servants of Jesus, we need to remember we're on mission. Then verse 5. But whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. Now the expression son of was a way of defining a person's nature. James and John were called sons of thunder. Why? Because they had an explosive temper. Jesus called the Pharisees sons of disobedience. And you can guess why. Here, the phrase son of peace means a peaceful person. So, find a peaceful person and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. In other words, if fellow believers put you up, well, then be content. You know, don't hold out for the best accommodations. Don't keep running around trying to find a better deal. Be content, be grateful. For he says, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you. Which is what my wife used to always tell my kids. Eat such things that are set before you. Don't be picky. I can get a little picky. Don't get picky. Be thankful for what you've got. That's what should be our attitude. And heal the sick there. And say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Notice, Jesus considered bodily healing a sign that His kingdom had come. That God is in the house. That God is on the throne. That God is ruling the day. I believe healing is still a sign that Jesus is among us. That's why we pray for the healing of the sick. 
But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, The very dust of your city which clings to us we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. A laborer for God has to learn to handle rejection. It'll come. And rejection can prompt two reactions. Either feelings of failure or desires for revenge. And the way to deal with both is recalling that our responsibility is to simply provide folks an opportunity. This is why you shake the dust off. Why? Because dusty shoes are a sign that I did my duty. That I went where I was supposed to go. That an opportunity was given. Wiping the dust means that my responsibility is done. And then verse 12, But I say to you that it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. And Jesus now mentions several cities that will be held responsible for their rejection of His kingdom. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! Bethsaida means house of fishing because that's what it was. It was a fishing outpost on the northern end of the lake where the upper Jordan fed into the Sea of Galilee. Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, which you'll mention later, were the prominent cities on the lake during the days of Jesus. And of these three, I love Chorazin. Always take our group there. I think it's special. Chorazin was built on a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. It has this panoramic view a perfect climate, little rock badgers jumping around on top of the rocks. Has fertile fields around it. It's set on a prosperous trade route. It was a city with all the advantages. But with privilege comes responsibility. And because it missed its opportunity to receive Jesus, today it's nothing but charred ruins. It's an important visual lesson. Jesus says, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. You see, Tyre and Sidon, these were Phoenician cities on the Mediterranean coast. And Mark 7 is the only record we have of Jesus ever visiting either city. Whereas he spent the majority of his ministry between these three cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum. It was here that Jesus worked countless miracles. In that little bitty triangle right at the north part of the lake, that's where Jesus did most of his miracles. That's why we call it the Gospel Triangle or the Jesus Triangle. Here Jesus teaches that the severity of a person's or a city's judgment is measured by the degree of opportunity that's been given to that person. Responsibility comes with privilege. No one preached Jesus to the city of Sodom. Tyre and Sidon received only a minor witness, yet God judged them. Whereas for a season, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum hosted the Messiah, they hosted His miracles on a daily basis. So whose judgment is going to be greater? The one with more opportunity. If Tyre and Sidon or even Sodom had been given the privileges of Chorazin, revival 
would have occurred in short order. Instead, its citizens rejected the gospel, and they'll end up in a hotter spot in hell as a consequence. And if that was true of Chorazin, then what about Capernaum? Verse 15. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven. Capernaum was Jesus' headquarters in Galilee. Probably twice as many miracles were done in Capernaum than in all these other places combined. And yet the city that was exalted to heaven will be thrust down to Hades. Boy, unless we turn up our nose at Capernaum for their unbelief, we need to take heed. For last I checked, Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain is a privileged bunch. God has blessed us with a lot of opportunity, with a lot of privilege. We need to check out ourselves. For in verse 16, Jesus says, He who hears you hears me, and he who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. To reject the messenger is to reject the one who sent him. It's important that they remember this as they're sent out. And at this point, that's what happens. The 70 get sent out. They head out into the surrounding countryside. How long they're gone, we're not told. But when they return, verse 17 tells us, Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They were so excited. They had wrestled with demons and won. They had tag-teamed with God to work miracles. And they're returning with the press clippings in their hand. But Jesus has to address a few misconceptions. First, He says, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Jesus makes sure His disciples know their success hasn't been the result of their own power. That the devils have fled because they met the authority of Jesus. Understand the difference between power and authority. This is important. For 47 years, there was a petite, slender little, little old lady. Her name was Greta Coble. And she was the crossing guard on Skyland Drive between the parking lot and Saquonette High School. Greta stopped traffic for the students. She recently retired. Amazingly, for years, for 47 years, trucks and tractor trailers came to a dead stop for this tiny lady. All she had to do was hold up her hand. And they did so not because of her power. She had no power. They feared her authority. They could easily have plowed Greta over, but she was authorized by a power greater than her own. Mess with Greta, and you had to tangle with the whole police department. And this explains how a mere disciple of Jesus can drive out a supernatural demon. No hairy, burly, gnarly demon fears a spiritually petite and powerless disciple. We have no power on our own. But demons do recognize our authority. For Jesus has authorized us to do business in His name. The Lord of glory has our back. We lack power, but we have great authority in the name of Jesus. And in verse 20, there's another misconception that Jesus straightens out. 
Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. I love that. See, these 70 uh, disciples, they returned excited about what they had done for God. But Jesus says, what you should have been thrilled over was what God has done for you. I mean, here's the real miracle, that your names are written in heaven. I shouldn't be surprised that demons flee at Jesus' name. But what shocks me and keeps me surprised for a lifetime is that a holy God would be willing to pardon a sinner like me. The source of my joy is not in what I do for God, but in what He has done for me. And then verse 21 tells us, In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Jesus rejoices that the truths his disciples are living out have been hidden from the religious scholars of their day. Proud rabbis and theologians sat in darkness while these men, these fishermen and tax collectors, these men with simple faith walked in the light of God's love. It proves what's true even today, that God reveals himself to people with childlike faith. That he reserves his insights for humble hearts, not for haughty minds. And Jesus continues, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Here's a statement with profound implications. Jesus is the sole gatekeeper to God. The Son has exclusive access to the Father. The only folks who can truly know God are those who come through His Son. No one who denies or bypasses Jesus truly knows God. And then He turned to His disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. I mean, this avalanche of miracles and revelation brought by Jesus would have been the envy of the prophets and kings. Holy men in Old Testament times saw God in His wonders at a distance. A fog of sin kept them separated from God, but Jesus was a light in the darkness. He brought God's truth up close and personal. His disciples didn't know that they'd been given front row seats to the mysteries of God. Spiritual babes were now more enlightened than Hebrew prophets. And this is still God's way of allocating His blessings. It's not what you know, friend. It's who you know. Do you know Jesus? Have you humbled your heart? Do you have childlike faith in Him? To know Jesus is to know God. Father, thank you.